Hello. Welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. We're pleased to have you tuned in. They didn't get who God was. They didn't get that salvation is actually about being reconciled to God. And that God is the ultimate source of delight and pleasure and bliss. Have you heard of a place called Gehenna? Then prepare to be moved as we discover the significance of Gehenna. Tonight we join Dr. Corbett in Jeremiah chapter 7 for a look at Gehenna, hell on earth. Get your Bibles, please turn to Jeremiah chapter 7. Once you've got that, let's pray. Holy Spirit, we need you. We need you to speak to us. We need you to take the, the sacred text of your word. Help us to understand it. Help us to know how we today can learn from it, draw closer to you and be of more use for you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The opening chapters of Jeremiah run through the the call of Jeremiah, how God called him. And, And we're introduced to somebody who is not just coming up with good ideas. This is not someone who is inventing a whole bunch of stuff. This is somebody who's had an encounter with God. And the difference between Jeremiah and the prophets of his day is breathtaking. The prophets of his day, which we will encounter as we go through this book, because when we come to the end of chapter 7, and we're dealing with verses 30 to 34 today of chapter 7, that we've gone through the call of Jeremiah, which is going to be later on, it's going to be highlighted as a completely different call to the false prophets that Jeremiah encountered. The false prophets of, that were around in this time were, were validating the people. They were telling the people, you can, you can do what you're doing. In fact, God is with you. In fact, you should do what you're doing because this is the way you get blessed And blessing to the false prophets looked like pleasure and happiness. So there is this attitude that the world promotes. It's about being happy. It's about whatever brings you happiness. And and usually pleasure will bring you happiness. And again, Christians have had this shocking attitude about pleasure. That God frowns upon people who enjoy or take pleasure in things. But that's not what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 6. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, I think it's about verse 10, it says this, command, command those who are rich in this world to thank God because God gives all these things to be enjoyed. God gives pleasures to be enjoyed. And it's when we acknowledge God as the source of pleasure that we can actually live a life that's kind of worth living. Now here's, so these false prophets were telling people, you can have all the pleasures now and whatever pleasures you can get now is, is, is what life is really all about. And today, there are people who kind of teach the same thing and just kind of, they write books and they kind of put Bible references as footnotes just to satisfy the critical Christian community who have a, uh, who have a fraction of discernment to realise through this stuff. And they, they throw the word Jesus in to make it sound like this is something Jesus actually taught. And most Christians 
probably can't see the difference between what the Bible actually teaches and some of these books that talk about really God's got you on this planet simply to give you whatever you want give you whatever pleasure you want and justify any means to happiness that you can find in fact somebody wrote a book summing all this theory up called your best life now and I tell you if you live like that this will be your best life now because the next one will be a shocker and this will be about as good as it gets for you so we need to put Jeremiah in the perspective that he was battling against false prophets who were telling the people that what they were doing was not only okay, but what they were doing was actually ordained and blessed by God. And it's a hard thing when one man stands against the whole flow, he sounds completely foreign. And so we're introduced to the call of God on Jeremiah in the opening few verses of Jeremiah. We're then in the opening chapter, we're seeing how Jeremiah is a young boy, perhaps 12 years of age, as he's called into his ministry, just as Josiah rediscovers the law of God and implements these changes, that this young boy of 12, Jeremiah, is beginning to see visions that are so profound, he doesn't know if they're actually real or just visions that he's seeing. And, he's, and the Lord is speaking to him in these visions. And then we come into chapter 2, and some time has elapsed, probably about six or so years. Jeremiah's around about 18 or so now, very, very young. Can you imagine how the you know, the, Jeremiah's doing this in, in, the, in the gateway of the temple where the king comes in? He's, he's standing at the king's gate coming in, and he's saying, an 18-year-old Man saying, thus says the Lord. Can you see the context here is like, who are you? And so we, we, we come to um, chapter 2 and Jeremiah is not seeing visions now, he's hearing God. And this shows that in those six or so years, he's grown in his depth and ability to, to hear and receive from God. And, and then, then begins... This list in, in chapters 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 and 7 of the sins of Israel. And it sets the scene for the, the rest of the book. So here we have, it's almost like a court case. In fact, someone has said the, the entire book of Jeremiah is, is really God indicting Israel just in a legal process for breaking the covenant. And, and now the prophet culminates this in chapter 7 where he has listed the sins that they have committed and we're going to see in a moment that if you're, you recall in, in the start of chapter 7 we, we're introduced to this concept that the people had firstly committed the sin of religion now that might sound strange and, and, and I, I, I struggle to even use the word like this because the Bible actually uses the word religion in quite a positive light but I'm going to use it in a negative light to sum up what Jeremiah was saying. Because there's a type of religion that is all about form and ceremony and ritual and got no heart in it at all. So we call that the formal religion because it's all about form. And Jeremiah, in the opening verses of chapter 7, is scathing about the people and their formal religion. They were worshipping God in form, but not from their heart. And it looked like this. They would go to the temple, they would pay their 
their tithes, they would pay their sacrifices, they would buy their animals, the priests would sacrifice them. Done. Let's go out and hire a prostitute, commit adultery, lie, cheat, steal, murder. And this is the list that Jeremiah gives in chapter 7. And he says, the Lord says to Jeremiah, have you seen what they have been doing in the cities of Judah? And I've mentioned to you that the people had this formal religious concept that God lived in the temple. And for God to say to Jeremiah, have you seen what they've been doing in the cities of Judah? Is like, how did God get, who let God out? How did God see what we were doing in the cities of Judah? Who left the door open? They had this concept that if God's in there, we can just lock the doors and now we'll just do whatever we want. That's what religion does. Religion says, I'll worship God on Sunday and I'll play like a sinner on Monday. And these people were guilty of that. And Jeremiah lists the other things that they were doing. But that's where it started. It started with a false idea of God. And when you've got a false idea of God, anything goes in your mind. Anything. And so we've gone through this list and we come to, just before we look at this section, you recall from verses 21 to 28, where God says you're sacrificing animals as if you think you can now, you've now got a license or a blank check to sin. And God is saying, I didn't command you to sacrifice animals I commanded you to obey my, not my law, not my word, my voice. Remember that? The voice. And you you see what what the prophet is saying is God is saying, because if you're going to hear the voice of God, it demands intimacy. You see, we can take the words, we can... We could, someone could write you a letter, you could take that letter a gazillion miles away, read that letter and, and it's as if they're talking to you, but it's not the same, is it, as being right there across a dinner table, holding hands, looking into their eyes and talking, hear my voice. And God says to the people, I wanted you to obey my voice. Can you hear what he's saying? I wanted you to be my people. And it's a wedding expression. I will be your God, you will be my people. It's an expression of intimacy. And and, and God is saying, this is what I wanted, this is what I called you to, but you would not hear and heed my voice. And so now we're coming right to the end of chapter 7. And this is where I want to introduce something to you. It's the concept of Gehenna and I am going to introduce this concept to you and talk a little bit about what most English Bibles in the New Testament translate the the Greek word Gehenna as hell. So Gehenna, hell on earth. And I want to show you the origin, the visual origin of this picture. Okay, so before we do, I want to ask you this question as we are going to look at this section, Jeremiah 7, verses 30 to 34. Here's the question. Would you still want to be a Christian if you found out there was no hell? Ponder that. 
Because I think some people think Christianity is simply an insurance policy against going to hell. And if that's you, welcome into the kingdom. But you may discover that on your ticket, it's not a deck voyage. You've actually got a cabin. Come on in. Experience what your salvation is really all about. It's not just about being pulled out of the water. It's about enjoying the journey. And if you think Christianity is simply so you don't go to hell, that might get you there. That might get you into the kingdom. But I tell you now, that is not the message of Jesus. And it's not the message of the New Testament. Consider this. In all of the record of the New Testament, through the book of Acts, the writings of the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul never used the word hell once. Never. Isn't that interesting? In all the record of gospel preaching, he never spoke about hell. So, hope I've got you intrigued. If you found out there was no hell, would you still be a Christian? Or is the only reason you're a Christian because you think, at least I'm not going to hell? Well, here's another question for you. Would you still want to be a Christian if you found out there was no heaven? I guess I need to qualify this question. Would you still be a Christian if you found out that your salvation simply meant that you would spend eternity with Jesus, wherever he is? Because I think some people think Christianity is about having their insurance policy paid up so they can go to heaven. And it's interesting that in all of the record of the apostles preaching, there's there's nothing about give your life to Jesus so that you can go to heaven. They didn't preach it. They didn't teach it. And yet it's become so ingrained in in Christian thinking that Christianity is about shunning hell and grasping heaven. It's about avoiding hell and, and entering heaven. And by the way, it is. But I don't think that's the gospel. I don't think that's what it's all about. So I want you to ponder this because I don't want us to be guilty of the same thing Jeremiah's audience was guilty of, and that is they didn't get who God was. They didn't get that salvation is actually about being reconciled to God and that God is the ultimate source of delight and pleasure and bliss and that being with him nourishes and satisfies our soul like nothing else. And we get to have that for eternity. Wow! That's salvation. Beholding Jesus as the treasure of your life. I've jumped ahead. I almost concluded. (laughs) So let's have a look. Verse 30. Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 30. For the sons of Judah have done this evil in my sight, declares the Lord They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. Wow. Verse 31. And they have built 
the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. Wow. We're now being introduced to this concept of this place called Tophet. It probably looks like Topheth. But it's in Hebrew, TH is usually pronounced Tophet. Tophet, I've got a picture here of kind of a modern picture of the valley of Hinnom. We're introduced to this place in uh, Judges, uh, I think 15. When they conquered the city of Jerusalem, on the south side, there was kind of a, a natural runoff thing. And eventually it became the place where when they built the walls, and you can see some of the, the ruins of the walls up there. When they built the walls, the people would take their rubbish and just throw it over and it would just roll down. And This thing became the valley of rubbish. And then eventually somebody got the idea, probably because of the stench, well, we can't leave it there. So in a particular part of the valley of Hinnom, they set up this part of it called Tophet, which means burning furnace that's that's what it is so they set up this huge furnace and they would throw the rubbish in and burn the rubbish and that's tophet that's where it is so the valley of hinnom was a rubbish dump and a part of that valley tophet was this burning furnace so so kind of that's a bit of the background here to what we're talking about come with me now to verse 32 therefore behold the days are coming declares the lord when it will no more be called tophet or the valley of the son of hinnom but the valley of slaughter for they will bury in tophet because there is no room elsewhere wow We'll come back to this in a moment. We'll keep going with the text. Verse 33. And the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and none will frighten them away. Verse 34. And I will silence in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land shall become a waste. Jeremiah is saying that some judgment is, come, is about to come against the nation of Israel, the Judah as it was then. And there would be so many dead bodies that this just wouldn't be a rubbish dump, that the bodies would be thrown into this valley and that the bodies themselves would have to be burned and that this place would be a place where people would be slaughtered and burned indeed that did happen when the babylonians conquered the city and especially around the year 586 bc it was a massacre by the way the same thing similar thing happened when the romans conquered jerusalem around 70 ad now <clears throat> this valley of hinnom in greek valley or land is the word g it's where we get geology geography g g e and Hinnom in Greek is Henna. That's where we get this word Gehenna. Gehenna. 
Jesus used the word Gehenna 12 times. And in most English Bibles, it's translated as hell. And it's interesting that Jeremiah talks about this place and he makes reference to something that King Josiah, when he was alive and Jeremiah is prophesying from chapters 1 to 6 during the reign of Josiah and Josiah is probably now dead, that Josiah, we read in 2 Kings 23, destroyed Tophet. Why? Because it says in 2 Kings 23, um, I think it's about verse 10 or so, around, it's in 2 Kings 23, that the people were using Tophet, the furnace at Tophet, taking their babies down to Tophet, their newborn babies, and throwing them into the furnace alive. I want you to see that Jeremiah, in listing the sins in order of depravity, finishes with this. Because even though Josiah had destroyed Tophet, the people in their sin had rebuilt it. And they were throwing their children into the fire, something forbidden in Leviticus 18, verse 21. And if you know anything about Leviticus 18, which says, Leviticus 18, 21, it says, you shall not pass your children through the fire as the pagan nations whom I am driving out of the land practice, as they worship Molech. Now, Molech was pictured as the sun and his wife, the moon. This was Baal, Molech, the sun. This was the moon, the queen of heaven, Astarte, Asherah. And it's perhaps on first glance when we read in Leviticus 18, God is telling the people, you're coming into a land where they throw children alive into fire as a sacrifice to this false god, Molech, and his wife, the queen of heaven. You are not to copy them. Pretty clear. And yet the people did. Why? Because Molech offered pleasure. In fact, the way you worshipped Molech was to take one of the temple prostitutes of Molech and have sex with her, it was supposedly an act of fertility, and it was supposedly if you did this at an Asherah pole, set up as a phallic symbol on a hill overlooking your farm, this act of immorality would supposedly bring a blessing of fertility on your crops. But if you really wanted the blessing of Molech, you would take the symbol of your fertility, your child, and throw your child into the furnace as an offering to Molech. It was a gruesome picture and it was reinstated in the days of Jeremiah where they were doing this. We read, I think it was Manasseh who worshipped in this way. He took his son and threw him into the fire at Tophet to worship Molech. And God describes this as the most heinous sin, which I find a little intriguing because I would have thought false worship would be the thing that would really get God's goat up. But as you think about this, this is false worship. And it is false worship of the worst kind. You see, what does the devil hate? He hates God 
And, and every time he sees you, you're created in the image of God. You cause hatred to arise in the devil. So what does the, what, what's the devil's strategy to defile the image of God in man? A baby is a celebration of the image of God. If the devil can get a society at its most depraved state to destroy its children, it is the most heinous of sins. You wonder why some of us get upset about abortion in our society? It's about false worship. And here Israel has had its sins listed against it for which God was about to judge them and turn this valley of Hinnom into a valley of slaughter. What's interesting is that this depiction of bodies being slaughtered and burned is the word Greek word Gehenna. Jesus, in speaking of the ultimate destiny of those who would not surrender to God, said they would be in danger of the fires of Gehenna. Now, it's uncertain in the time of Christ whether the Valley of Hinnom was still used as a rubbish dump. It's uncertain. But what is pretty certain is that Tophet was not being used at the time of Christ to throw babies into. It wasn't happening. So when Christ speaks of Gehenna, he's picking up this visual picture in Jeremiah 7 and it occurs again in Jeremiah 19. This is really important because Jesus is saying to his original audience, Gehenna will happen again. And it did during the reign of the Romans. And there are some Christians that go, oh, well, that's what... That's what that's how we've mistakenly understood hell then. Hell is just what happened during the siege of Jerusalem, during the time of the Roman invasion. But here's the problem with that. One of the problems with that. The problems are numerous, but here's one of them. Jesus in Matthew 25 said, there will come a day when God will judge and he'll separate the sheep from the goats and those who have heeded his voice, his sheep, my sheep hear my voice, will come into eternity with the father those who have rejected his voice will be separated like goats and will go to everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels i think it's matthew 25 verse 41 to 43 i think whatever the flames of gehenna were there was not everlasting fire and I know some people get around this by saying, no, it doesn't mean everlasting. I, I looked at the Greek and it, it's everlasting. And it certainly, whatever Gehenna was, it certainly was not in the mind of God prepared for the devil. There is, a, there is something here, Jesus using a word picture to describe the ultimate destiny of those who reject God. Now we have a word for that in English. Actually, it's an, ancient, an, an, an archaic English word and it's the word hell. The, the problem for some of us is, is going to, re, to be to realise that Jesus' message of salvation is not just, please do this so that you don't go to hell. That wasn't the message of Christ. But he did warn. He warned his audience, do all you can to avoid going to hell. He said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Because it's better to enter into life with one hand than to go with two into hell. Wow, that's a, 
That's a stern warning. And of course, we have the picture, the visual picture in Luke 16, where we have the rich man who died and Lazarus the beggar. And we see the rich man who died in this, this place, the place of the dead. And there's a Hebrew word for that. It's called Sheol. In the place of the dead, there were two compartments. There was the, the, the one compartment over here we might call Hades, place of torment. And in Luke 16, the rich man says, looking at Abraham, comforting the poor man Lazarus, the rich man says, send Lazarus over here to comfort me in my torment. And Abraham says, I can't because there is a chasm that cannot be crossed between us. And you can look at that in Luke 16. That is not the final destiny of the wicked, those who reject God. According to the book of Revelation, Hades itself will give up the dead and those in it will be cast into the lake of fire, the ultimate destiny of those who reject God. It's a gruesome picture. And here we have the prophet Jeremiah climaxing his rebuke of the people, listing their vilest sin, taking the lives of innocent children, Taking the lives of innocent children and butchering them in the name of pleasure and happiness. What a sick society. But we need to be careful because whatever numbers they manage to achieve, I guarantee you, in our society, you can add multiple zeros to the number of children that are being sacrificed for the same reason today. Jesus uses this vile picture of Gehenna to describe the destiny of those who reject God. As we conclude this section, because this helps to give some of the background to some of the teachings of Jesus, it's important to understand the devil wants to ruin your life. God has got a purpose for your life. The devil wants to ruin it. Mankind was created to, the false prophet would say, be happy. The false prophet would say, seek out every pleasure. Seek out the, the, that bone of pleasure and suck the marrow out of it. But the Bible would say, mankind was created to worship. Mankind was created to worship. The devil knows it. The angels know it. God knows it. It just seems like there's a whole bunch of people who haven't realized it yet, even though they can't help but do it. The question isn't whether you will worship. The question is, what will you worship? We all worship something. And if I can put the what will you worship question into a broader question of how will you worship? Because what you will worship kind of determines how you will worship. How will you worship? How do you worship? How do you worship? Is Jesus the object of your devotion? Are you a Christian because, whew, that was close, I nearly ended up in hell. Or are you a Christian because I've seen Jesus? He is the treasure in the field. I will sell everything to buy that field and get that treasure. 
Jesus is the source of my delight. Jesus is the one who has revealed himself to me. And I want nothing else but him. And when you get Jesus, it's a package deal. You get his body, the church. And I love the church and we should love the church. And we come together as the church to worship God. Because sin is about me. But glory is about us giving it to God. Let's pray. Father, help us to be a people who ascribe to you your due worship, your due glory. Help us to give you glory. Father, as we read of these people in the day of Jeremiah who utterly had hearts darkened, who utterly had minds depraved, who utterly rebelled against you, and this is where it led. Oh God, oh God, I pray for my heart not to be formally religious, but to be wholeheartedly devoted to Christ. I want Jesus to be the treasure of my life. Now, if you're listening to me today, you might be in your kitchen, your lounge room, your bedroom. You might be in your car. You might be on a plane, wherever you are listening to me right now. I invite you to make Jesus the Lord of your life. Take, take the I out of sin and put the O and worship the Son instead of sin. The O of wonder. Oh, of glory. Oh, Jesus. Put O in the middle of sin and take the I out and make him the Lord of your life. Will you do that? Will you surrender to Jesus? You're one prayer away from being reconciled to God. A prayer that says, oh God, forgive me of my sin. Forgive me. Help me to enjoy fellowship with you. Help me to enjoy salvation. Help me to enjoy all that you have for me and help me to live for you. Fill me with your spirit, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you still want to be a Christian if you found there was no heaven? What's your motivation for being a Christian? A ticket to heaven? Or because of the wonder and magnificence of God? Podcasts and Finding Truth Matters resources, including tonight's program, Jeremiah Session 16, Hell on Earth, are available from Lagana Media. You can contact us at P.O. Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania 7277, or via the website findingtruthmatters.org. If you'd like to subscribe to the monthly e-newsletter Perspectives, visit findingtruthmatters.org and click subscribe. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.